But again, this good morning, everybody. Um, over the last few weeks, we've been going through kind of a mini Christmas series. Uh, we've been talking about Christmas in a bit of a different way. Uh, we've been look, focusing on the story of Jesus' birth, but we've been looking at why exactly Jesus came, um, that he holds three offices and what those offices mean for us. Jesus is prophet, Jesus is priest, and Jesus is king. He came to this earth as our Savior, our Messiah, and he fulfilled what was prophesied about him in the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, let me go ahead here, chapter 18, verse 15, it says, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. This is Moses speaking to the people. And Jesus, and so Jesus is prophet. Jesus is also priest. The entire sacrificial system of the Old Testament was set up to point to Christ. And we see that in the book of Hebrews. And then finally, the Old Testament speaks of a king that God will raise up from the line of David. All of the great leaders of Israel held at least one of these offices. They were either prophets, priests, or kings. And when we think of a prophet, we often think about one who predicts something in the future, right? Something that's coming. And, and that can be a part of what a prophet does. But where does a prophet receive these visions, um, these proclamations about the future? From God, right? A prophet really is the mouthpiece of God. A prophet brings God's message to the people. And so Moses was a prophet. He brought God's words, his direction, his guidance, and his commandments to the, to the Jewish people. The second role that some of the great leaders of Israel held were priests. Priests represented the people and made sacrifices on their behalf. Another great leader of the Jewish people was Samuel. Samuel was a prophet and a priest. He brought God's message to the people. He was a prophet. But he was also a Levite, and he performed priestly duties, such as offering sacrifices to God. Another great leader of Israel was David. He was chosen by God and anointed by Samuel to be king of Israel. King David was called by God a man after God's own heart. And when we read the Psalms, we see David's heart. Even in the hardest times of his life, he trusted God and he had a heart to serve God. David had a big misstep in his life but he repented and he surrendered his life back to God and God forgave him. God um, forgave him of that sin. Although there were consequences for that sin, he lost his baby and he wasn't able to, to build God's temple like he wanted to, um, but God did forgive him and he repented and he was able to live out the rest of his days as God's servant king. And he's remembered as one of Israel's greatest leaders. Jesus, whom you've probably guessed by now um, from the title of our sermon series, was the only great leader in Israel's history who held all three offices of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus fulfilled both priestly and prophetic roles, and we looked at those in details 
sorry, in detail over the last couple of Sundays. If you missed those, you can go back and listen to them on our website. But we also see from the scriptures that Jesus had the role of king. And if you have your Bible or your Bible app ready, why don't you, just, why don't you turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. We see in Matthew chapter 1 that Joseph has become aware, of Mary, that, aware that Mary is pregnant. And not wanting Mary to be publicly shamed, he has decided to divorce her quietly. Joseph is assuming that Mary has betrayed him, and as a result, she is pregnant. But before Joseph is able to go through with this, an angel visits him in a dream. And this is where we're going to take a look, starting in verse 20. The angel says to him, Joseph, son of David, do not, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's from Isaiah chapter 7, I believe. So he will, he will be called God with us. We know that Jesus came as a baby, uh, in fact, he was sent by the Father. For God so loved the world, he sent his only son, right? Over the, last, um, over the last little while, we've been going through the Gospel of John. And we've seen that Jesus came here to earth. He lived here 2,000 years ago. Emmanuel, God with us. He came and he ministered to the Jewish people. He taught, he taught them about God about himself. He is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is God, but he also taught about the Father and the Holy Spirit. And he taught the Jewish people about themselves, that they were sinners, rebels in need of a Savior. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit in followers of Jesus, we have the four Gospels, and we too are able to learn from the words and works of Jesus written down for us. Jesus came and lived here, God with us, and this was foretold in the Old Testament. The angel quotes to Joseph this prophecy, again, which is from the book of Isaiah. And Joseph wasn't the only one to receive a visit from an angel. We, we, are, we are all familiar with the story, right? We know from the Gospel of Luke that the angel Gabriel visited, had previously visited Mary, and he tells her that although she is a virgin, she will conceive a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. And she is also told that his name will be Jesus. And Gabriel shares a different prophecy with Mary. He says in Luke 1, starting in verse 32, he says, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a prophecy that is repeated throughout the book of Daniel. Did you know that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that tell us about the coming of Jesus? 
And what do these prophecies say? Well, we just saw, we actually just saw six of these prophecies in Matthew 1 and Luke 1. Jesus will be born of a virgin. People will call him God with us. He will save people from their sins. The Father will give him the throne of David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will not end. And so there's, there's, hun- there's hundreds more of these, these verses that not only talk about his first coming, but also his second coming, his, his return. So we're going to take a look at a few more of these prophecies, but specifically at what else the Old Testament says about Jesus as king. Before we dive into that, though, we need to look at the history of kings in Israel. Did you know that God's original plan was that he himself would be king of Israel. And after he led them, <clears throat> excuse me, after he led them to the promised land, Israel started to forget about God and forget about what he had done for them. And they began to worship the gods of the nations around them. Because of this, God handed them over to their enemies, and when they cried out to him, he raised up a leader from among them to deliver them. This was a dark time in Israel's history, and they, they continued this cycle of rebelling against God, God in turn handing them over to their enemies, Israel crying out for help, and then God sending a leader to rescue them. These leaders were called judges, and they were not judges in the sense uh, of someone in a robe banging a gavel, calling for order in a court. The Hebrew word that is translated judge in English is much broader than what we would consider the word judge or or a person as judge. It, It did have to do with administering justice, but it also had to do with ruling or leading. And so God sent these judges to free Israel from their captors and then to lead the people back to God. Again, this was a vicious cycle that continued on until the people of Israel finally get tired of it and and they demand that they have a real king. Other nations have kings, so they thought they should have one too. And that's exactly what they tell Samuel. Samuel was the last judge of Israel, and he wasn't happy about this. He feels defeated, he feels rejected. And so he goes to God in prayer, and this is what God says to him in 1 Samuel chapter 7. God says, listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. So again, this is 1 Samuel 7, and it goes on to explain uh, what, what that means, claim as his rights. It means that the king will have the right to conscript men into the army. The king will have the right to take both men and women to serve in his palace He will have the right to take a tax of food and animals from the people. And Samuel finishes explaining this 
In verse 17, he says, he, he's talking about the king, he will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. So Israel had clearly forgotten that their current king, God himself, had been fighting their battles. He had delivered them from Egypt and he had led them to the promised land. And, and he had continued to deliver them when they fell into sin and rebellion. And guess what happens when this new era of kings comes? The same cycle of rebellion, repentance, deliverance. Rebellion, repentance, deliverance. And after about 300 years of this, God finally puts an end to this cycle. Not that he hadn't tried before. Um, he, in, during this time, he had sent great prophets like Elijah, Elisha, and Isaiah. But by, by this time, 300 years later, the Jewish people had split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's around this time that the Assyrians come and they invade that northern kingdom of Israel. And they come and they carry away most of the Israelites to Assyria. And, and not only that, they place foreigners from other nations in the land of Israel, in actually the capital city of Israel, which was called Samaria. This is why Samaritans were considered so unclean. They were a mix of Jews and foreigners. Anyway, I mentioned the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah lived at this time in the capital city of Judah, Jerusalem. And Isaiah starts the book of Isaiah by telling the reader that the descendants of David have all become evil kings, murderers, and thieves. And one of the main themes of the book of Isaiah is this. It's Israel's sin, divine justice, restoration of Israel with a new king, and peace on earth. And if you've read the book of Isaiah, it's, it's not easy to understand it. It's mostly poetry. And Isaiah starts to develop this theme of, of sin, justice, restoration, and peace by poetically describing how King Ahaz, he's the king of, of Judah, King Ahaz has come under the yoke of Assyria and is not only forced into a, a heavy tribute to Assyria, he's paying a lot of money to them, but this agreement with Assyria also causes the nation of Judah to engage in false worship. And Isaiah confronts King Ahaz, but King Ahaz refuses to change. And despite the hopelessness of this situation, it seems very hopeless, Isaiah offers a prophecy of hope. And this is chapter 9 of Isaiah and we know true prophecy comes from God, right? That's how Isaiah is able to declare 
that a king will come who will rescue the Jewish people. He says in, in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. So why is this prophecy in chapter 9 so significant? Well, first of all, the Jewish people were in a very bad predicament when Isaiah wrote this. They needed to be delivered. They needed a deliverer. And that deliverer has always been God. Even when they reject him as king, even when they are in this situation with Assyria, even when not long after this, they are actually exiled to Babylon and they're hauled off to Babylon. God was always prepared to rescue his people. And this promise of a deliverer actually goes back to the Garden of Eden, when, when God is pronouncing judgment on Adam and Eve and the serpent. We looked at this a few weeks ago. Adam and Eve had disobeyed God's one command to them, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And they do. And so sin, rebellion, brings God's judgment. And the serpent who deceived Adam and Eve also receives judgment. And God says to the serpent in chapter 3, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. In the midst of judgment, this judgment to the serpent, God offers hope. Even though humanity messed it all up, right at the beginning, God promises to bring restoration almost immediately The offspring in this promise, of course, is Jesus. And he will come and overcome the evil one, bruise his head when he triumphs over sin and death. The enemy will will bruise the heel of Christ, God says, and this is referring to what Jesus will go through. He will be bruised, to put it lightly, in order to accomplish ultimate victory. But he will be victorious. He's a triumph, triumphant king, for he will triumph over sin and death. And so Jesus is a triumphant king. What else does the Bible say about who Jesus is as king? Well, Isaiah 9 is actually a great place to, to, to look. Verse, verse 6 says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. When Isaiah says that he will be called counselor, he's talking about the wisdom with which he will rule. In Isaiah 11, we actually get a a bigger picture of this. It says, excuse me, "The, the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. And so he will be a wonderful counselor. And and wonderful here could also be translated exceptional. So he will be an exceptionally wise ruler, 
Jesus is an exceptionally wise king. It also says his name shall be called Mighty God. Jesus is the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is Mighty God and God reclaiming the throne of his people. So Jesus is also a divine king. It says his name shall be called Everlasting Father. And this is not, this is actually not, has nothing to do with the Trinity. It can be confusing. I was confused when I, I remember reading this as a kid and thinking, what? But God the Father and the Son are, are separate persons of the Trinity. And so these titles, all of these titles that are mentioned here have to do with Jesus as king. And so he will be like a father. He will care for his people and protect his people like a father does, and he will do it forever. And so Jesus is a fatherly king. He cares for his people. It also says his name shall be called Prince of Peace. Jesus is a king that will bring peace. And, and we also see this announced by the angels when they um, announce this to the shepherds in Luke 2. They say, glory to God in the highest and on, on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And, so, and something we need to understand here is that this peace is not for everyone, but only for those who call Jesus their king. I think um, sometimes we get confused by this because the King James Version uh, is the one that's used most in Christmas carols, and it's, it says, um, peace on earth, goodwill to men. But Jesus didn't come to bring peace for everyone. He came to offer peace only to those who repent and surrender to him. Yes, he came to offer peace to the whole world, but only to those who place their faith in Jesus. Only those are able to experience this peace that is being proclaimed here because only they are freed from sin, right? Romans 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is a king that brings peace. <clears throat> Excuse me, he's a <clears throat> king that brings peace, not by force, not in the way that earthly rulers do, by force and might, not in a political way or a physical way, but in a spiritually significant way. We are restored to a relationship of peace with God, one that Adam and Eve had before sin broke everything. Moving on to verse 7 of Isaiah 9. <clears throat> verse 7 refers to his kingdom, of the greatness of his kingdom and peace, there will be no end. This is from the NIV. The ESV says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Same meaning, but the word increase maybe is a little bit more clear. Jesus' rule will extend or increase um, beyond the borders of Israel. So it will include everyone. It will include all Gentiles. And so his kingdom will be great, and it will be accompanied by peace. 
and it will have no end. We see rulers come and go. We see the borders of countries or kingdoms change. There used to be an East Germany, right? But Jesus's kingdom will have no borders. It will extend or it extends to all who bow down to him and it will last forever. He will rule forever. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. It says, God made a promise to David that one day he would raise up from David's line one that would, whom he would establish his line forever. And we see from both Joseph and Mary's lineage in Matthew and Luke that Jesus was a descendant of David. And this is, this is exactly the reason that they are in Bethlehem, right? Joseph had to go to the town of his ancestry for the census. And I know Joseph wasn't his natural father, but the fact that both Joseph and Mary were from the line of David would leave no question that Jesus is from the line of David. So he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. Establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Jesus is God. And again, the kingdom of God is not a kingdom that is established on earth with force. It's established when the father sends his son to die. Earthly kingdoms bring peace with force and with military might. That's how Rome did it. But God's kingdom is so completely different than any kingdom on earth. The first will be last, and the last will be first in this kingdom, we're told in Matthew 20. God's kingdom actually defines justice and righteousness because those are qualities of the character of God. We only know what justice is because we are made in his image. He is the ultimate example of justice and doing what is right. And we only know what is right because he teaches us what is right in his word. He defines righteousness. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. From that time on and forever. When did Jesus become king? Was it when he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey? Or was it when he died and rose again, when he triumphed over sin and death? Or was it when he ascended to the Father after the resurrection and was seated at the right hand of the Father, as Hebrews 1 tells us? It was before all of this. Jesus was born a king. The angels gave that royal announcement of his birth to the shepherds. And the wise men came seeking him because he was a king. King Herod was even threatened by this, so much so that he has all the children to and under in that area killed. And throughout the gospels, we see recognition of his kingship. When Jesus first calls his disciples, we see in John 1, Philip tells Nathanael, we found the Messiah. 
And so they go to Jesus, and, and Jesus says to Nathanael in verse 47, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Because of the scriptures, the Jewish people knew that the Messiah was a king from the line of David who would deliver them. And Jesus rides in, when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, what do the people shout out? They shout out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. So Jesus was already a king. When he's nailed to the cross, there's a sign placed above his head, which reads, King of the Jews. And, and this sign was actually meant for his shame. But the cross was his triumph as king. He didn't ride into Jerusalem as king on a war horse. His triumph was not over the Romans as the Jewish people had expected at this time. His triumph as king was offering himself as a sacrifice for the people. Most kings, earthly kings, would expect people to give their lives for them. King Jesus gave his life for us. And why did he do that? Because of sin, right? Because of our rebellion. I remember reading, in, reading the Old Testament as a young man and, and thinking, these people are idiots. <laughs> How can God's people, Israel, continue in this pattern of repentance, deliverance, rebellion? Rebellion, repentance, deliverance. How can they forget about God so easily? And, and then I realized, that's me. I'm the same. I'm as forgetful and self-centered as they were. And I needed someone to come and rescue me just as much as they did. Jesus has come as king to teach us about God. He's come to teach us about ourselves, that we are a rebellious people in need of rescuing. And then he did it. He rescued us. He triumphed over sin and death. He came and he will come back. And when he returns, we will see the fullness of his kingdom and what it fully means for him to be king. His kingdom is here now, and we, the church, are a part of it, but it's not fully here yet. God is giving time uh, for people to repent, because when the kingdom fully comes, it'll be too late. We see that in several of the parables of Jesus. His coming back He's coming back, and when he comes, for some, it will be too late. And so I want to ask you this morning, is Jesus your king? Do you recognize that you need to be rescued? If you've given your life to this king, then you know that he is a wonderful counselor. He is mighty God. He is an everlasting father, and he is the prince of peace. If you have not given your life to this king, it's not too late. Not yet, anyway. Come talk to me after the service. I'd be happy to pray with you.
um, I, I think I can safely say that anybody here would be happy to pray with you. So don't be afraid to ask someone to pray with you if the Holy Spirit is speaking with you right now. Jesus is king, and this candle in the, the center of our Advent wreath represents the heart of and the reason for this season of Christmas, which is Christ's birth. God the Father sent his Son as a light into this dark world. And those who believe in him and surrender to him as king have been brought out of darkness. This candle in the center of the wreath is a symbol of Christ being the center of everything. And sometimes in our modern thinking, we think, you know, God first, then my family, then my job, and so on and so on. But no, Jesus is the center of everything we do if he is Lord of your life. He is the center of your marriage. He is the center of your family. He is the center of your job and your finances and your hobby and everything else in your life. One of the names of Jesus we hear a lot at Christmas, and I mentioned this before, is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is with us in the sense that he came to earth. Um, but because of the Holy Spirit, he's also residing in us. We are temples of God because God lives in us. And he comes to live in us when we accept him as Lord and King of our lives. And so Jesus is the center of everything we do because he is Lord and King of our lives. And so he is most certainly the center of and the reason for this season. He is our hope he is our joy, he is our peace, he is the light of the world, and he is our king. And so let me light this final candle, the Christ candle. Let's pray together. Jesus, we, we thank you for what you've done. We thank you that you have come and that's what this Christmas season is all about. You came as a little baby, and you lived on this earth. You taught us about who God is. You taught us about our need to, to repent and surrender our lives to you. And you died and rose again to rescue us from sin and to give us new life. We are a new creation if we have given ourselves to you. We see a glimpse now of your kingdom and your reign as king. You reign in our hearts, but you are coming back to reign over all creation as king. We are your servants, Jesus. We are your people. And I pray that you would continue to teach us how to live for you, how to teach others how to live for you. You are our King and our Savior, and we thank you for all that you've done and continue to do in our lives. Amen.